Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And so we start another brand new week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, It's President's Day. Uh, You know, this is a holiday that was initially established to honor the birthday of our first president, George Washington. Today, of course, is February 20th. Uh, Washington's birthday is February 22nd. So there's already a bit of confusion about why we're celebrating it today, except Congress decided that instead of celebrating it on his actual birthday, they do it on the third Monday of February so people could get a three-day weekend, except it gets a little bit even more complicated because, in fact, George Washington, who was born in Westmoreland County, Virginia, actually was born on February 11, 1731, and that's because in those days, the colonies, like the rest of the British Empire, used the Julian calendar. So it wasn't until a number of years later, 1750-something, that Parliament adopted the Gregorian calendar, at which point uh, his birthday became February 22nd. Um, The question then becomes, are we celebrating President's Day singular, as in George Washington, or President's Day S apostrophe, as in, oh, well, we're also honoring Abraham Lincoln, born on February 12th. The point is, it's a very confusing holiday, but for all of you who get a three-day weekend, more power to you and Congratulations. Um, We have a lot to talk about on the show today. Um, And of course, we're going to spend a good amount of time talking about another president, Jimmy Carter. And uh, we'll get to all of the news about his situation right now, which we learned over the weekend is increasingly um, dire. Um, And we'll talk about that with our panel. We're joined by Leroy Chapman, Managing editor of the Atlanta Journal Constitution, Leroy. I think you've already started deploying a battalion of people to cover Jimmy Carter now that he has decided to forego medical treatment and has gone into home hospice in Plains. Yes. Uh, yes, sir. We are uh, in Plains, and we have um, rented a house there that will be the sort of remote headquarters for the AJC and its coverage of um, President Carter. Well, thank you for taking the time to be uh, with us today. Mary Margaret Oliver, of course, we're very glad to have you back. Um, You're in the middle of the legislative session. You passed the midway point on Friday. We'll talk a bit about what's going on at the Capitol. But, of course, you have followed Jimmy Carter's career um, really from the start. And so I'll be interested in your thoughts. But in the meantime, thank you for being here. Happy to be here. Thank you. And we're joined by Professor Andre Gillespie, Professor of Political Science and Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Hi, hi Andre. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for shouting out Westmoreland County. My grandma's from there. Oh, no kidding. Well, that's really interesting. <laughs> uh, uh, Andre Gillespie, a native of the state of Virginia, we should point out. Um, Edward Lindsay is back with us as well. Of course, Edward is a former state representative uh, from Atlanta, 
uh, was in leadership in the Republican legislature back in the day and uh, now is a partner and oversees the Georgia government affairs practice at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Edward, thank you for joining us today, too. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's start. Let's start by uh, talking about Jimmy Carter. On um, Saturday afternoon, about 3.15, the Carter sent out this uh, note. I'm going to read it in full. After a series of short hospital stays, former U.S. President Jimmy Carter today decided to spend his remaining time at home with his family and receive hospice care instead of additional medical intervention. He has the full support of his family and his medical team, Carter family asks for privacy during this time and is grateful for the concern shown by his many admirers. Um, Leroy, President Carter, 98 years old, has survived a number of difficult health uh, issues, including uh, melanoma that went to his brain that many people thought was terminal about, what, five or six years ago. He survived that uh, and uh, uh, was... um, you know, admired enormously for the strength he showed in being able to beat that. Um, but his time is coming quickly, isn't it? It is. And what a remarkable life lived. Uh, and I think President Carter has shown us all uh, his own uh, durability. Uh, he's a man of tremendous faith, and he uh, does not hide that. Obviously, his life is led by it. Uh, there has been many times we have thought that uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, health challenges that uh, the question was, would he survive it? And so we prepared many times before for the possibility that he would not. Um, but uh, this, uh, where he is now, is um, a moment that. Uh, we uh, just lost uh, uh, oh, I'm your sorry. audio. For, there you go. Keep talking. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I'm sorry. So um, and, and where he is now, uh, I understand it personally, I lost my father in 2020 and uh, going into hospice care, uh, you know, there is a moment where uh, someone in a family has to make uh, a very difficult decision and uh, they're here. And so given where he is, what he survived and certainly his age, um, it is it is time, uh, but it is certainly a time for us to reflect on a, a remarkable life uh, for, you know, of course, one of the most influential Georgians in American history. So we're at a moment now where we, you know, are not eulogizing uh, President Carter, uh, but we are there understanding that his family and his community are in a very difficult spot that I think many of us can uh, empathize with. Mary Margaret, uh, over the weekend, his grandson, his grandson Jason, who is now the president of the Carter Center uh, board, uh, sent out a note saying um, that his grandparents are at peace um, and resigned to essential, and the household remains full of the love that they've always displayed there. Mary Margaret? It's a, it's a large and loving family, and many of them live around me in, in our neighborhood. Uh, Jason and Amy Carter both live in Candler Park, and of course, Chip lives in Decatur, and uh, President Carter has been on the Emory campus, uh, a significant part of his post president life. So they're very familiar and, of course, very, very well loved. I met President Carter when I was in law school, which is a gazillion years ago. Mm -hmm. I was sitting with the family in the governor's box 
because I, they had a governor's box at that time um, at the Atlanta Civic Center, and I was dating an AJC reporter, and I was invited. And I was, since I was the only person in the governor's box that the president didn't know, he came over and spoke to me, just as gracious and just as kind. Um, and I was, I don't know, 22 or something. It was a very big deal to me. And I remember it very, very well today in his very, very long career. Andre, he did establish a very uh, important relationship with Emory University. So he is on the faculty um, at Emory University, and as part of his faculty duties, he contributes uh, by he would give the uh, freshman convocation um, each year. So all uh, first year students were required to attend this event. And so you'd see it in the gym. I actually got to go once um, um, and, and and sort of witness him answering questions from students and engaging them. Um, he uh, would occasionally summon em um, Emory faculty to the Carter Center to have lunch with him. And so when you got that invitation, it scared the daylights out of me when I went. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't quite clear I made a good impression, but it was always a memory that I got to have lunch with Jimmy Carter. And then I remember the day I got the email where I was told President Carter is coming to your class on such and such a day. There was no negotiation. I was just told you he's coming on this day. And so I made the adjustments and uh, I have one blurry sort of like flip phone picture of that day when he came and spoke to my class. Um, I still like repeat some of the things that he said in that class because it was actually really relevant to the lesson. So I still use it today knowing that, you know, my students probably weren't going to get the same opportunity. And I remember a year or two later, one of my colleagues got that call and she was smart. She got a videographer. And I just looked at that going, why didn't I have the presence of mind to think of doing something like that um, when I had my Jimmy <laughs> Carter day? And I will always treasure both of those memories. <laughs> Edward, weigh in. Well, we all have uh, a lot of uh, deep affection for, for President Carter. And, uh, you know, he epitomizes a life well lived. And uh, and our thoughts and prayers are with his entire family, particularly his, his daughters and his sons, as well as uh, our friend Jason, who Mary Morgan and I served with in the General Assembly. And uh, I was very touched by what he what he tweeted out uh, this weekend. Um, my memory of him is I had the honor of being on uh, on a stage with him in high school. I, I, I was a Hearst Foundation scholar and my senior year was up in Washington. And since I was one of the two Georgia uh, recipients, uh, me and my uh, friend of mine got to be the one to get up on stage while he spoke to the whole crowd. So and that's a picture that I treasured my entire life. So, um, uh, you know. Once again, our, our, our thoughts are, are with his family and our prayers are with uh, with the journey that he's, he's undertaking at this moment. Um, and I think the journey is what I'd like to focus with you all on for the next few minutes uh, uh, that he is beginning uh, or continuing to take. And, and I want to start that by reading you some comments that Carter made uh, during a Sunday school class after he had survived uh, this cancer, which many people thought was fatal. Um, he came back to Maranatha Baptist Church, which had been his lifelong church in Plains, where he preached Sunday school, as I think we know famously, uh, every week, um, unless something interfered with that. And, and people came from everywhere to be able to watch his Sunday school class. They would literally camp out in the parking lot outside the church uh, in, in hopes that they would be able to get into the church. 
And on this particular Sunday, um, he he talked about um, the fact that people should not, again, after surviving this terrible cancer, people should not doubt the Bible's promise of life after death. He said this, quote, it's incompatible for any Christian not to believe in life after death. Although he then went on to admit that he'd had his own doubts about that throughout his life. He said, quote, I obviously prayed about it. I didn't ask God to let me live, but I just asked God to give me a proper attitude toward death. And I found that I was absolutely and completely at ease with death. It didn't really matter to me whether I died or lived, except I was going to miss my family and miss the work at the Carter Center and miss teaching Sunday school sometimes. Um, And he went on to say that from that point on, he has not doubted that he will live again. You know, Andra, in times of cynicism, skepticism about religion, that unerring almost unwavering, he admits to having doubts occasionally, but that, for the most part, unwavering faith is an extraordinary thing and maybe, maybe an example for many of us. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a question of whether or not we heed it. The reason why President Carter can be so confident in this moment and in this step is that his accounts are right with God. Um, you know, he made that faith profession, that faith commitment. He believes uh, that, you know, that because he's accepted Christ as, as his savior, that his sins are atoned for. So he gets to uh, go be with, uh, with with Christ. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And it doesn't mean that you don't have doubt. So I actually really appreciate the fact that that President Carter was actually willing to voice those doubts mm-hmm. and those questions, but those are questions that you take to God. And so I think about this in the Gospels where uh, a father is asking for his child to be healed and, and Jesus says, have faith. And he says, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. So you can have faith in the midst of doubt. Uh, but there is also this notion of we didn't do this on our own. Christ atoned for us so that we could actually be able to be in his presence. And that type of confidence, I think, can be an example to a uh, a lot of people. Um, and it's also an example of sort of how he, that confidence actually influenced how he lived his life, uh, you know, here on earth in terms of how he was president and actually what his post-presidency was, that this was a life that was spent serving others and being outwardly focused and not necessarily being narcissistic and unnecessarily always trying to, to gain the spotlight, which I think is also a really tremendous example as well. Leroy, I started that question with Andra because what I've learned over the years now that I have known her is not only is she an astute political observer, but Andra's a woman of deep faith herself. And so it's really wonderful to hear how she uh, frames the same thing that Carter talked about. But your take on all that, Leroy. Oh, absolutely. So, um, and I appreciate that, Andra. Uh, If you think about Jimmy Carter's life and what he's been, He's been transparent about it all, including his faith. And for him to be transparent about his doubt uh, also is the type of leadership that you get from uh, someone who has a, a a really deep understanding of his position uh, in our world, where he's able to um, influence people. And being an example as he is, someone who has humble beginnings, who uh, experienced the trappings of the most powerful position in the world, and then return back to his humbleness. I mean, it says something about 
uh, certainly his faith, because uh, as Andrea said, he uh, he understands that he is but one, uh, but his influence is is wide. Uh, he has been unafraid to share his faith, but he's done so in a way that is inclusive and and has been um, in keeping with his life where he has led uh, personally and transparently. And um, he's uh, a, the quintessential uh, servant leader. And we've seen that uh, not only in uh, his his transparency, but his works. And so I don't know if we'll see anything quite like uh, President Carter again. So uh, well, Edward to, and Mary to, Margaret, as I was yeah. as I was preparing for this show, I realized something <clears throat> that I was going to have two of you on the show who share one thing in common with Jimmy Carter, Edward Lindsay and Mary Margaret Oliver, pre-pandemic, both taught Sunday school <laughs> at their church as Carter did at his Edward. <laughs> Well, yeah, and and it's always a joy to, to teach it with Mary Margaret. Uh, I, th I think we can, uh, through our Sunday school class, can show folks that you can, you don't have to be part of the same political party to get along and to make things positive things happen. To sort of build on on the faith aspects and to tie it back into this show, which is the political show, is I do recommend to um, anyone uh the book of james which is only about four pages long uh in the bible but to me is one of the most consequential it may be the most consequential uh, uh part of the bible in which uh the book of james uh preaches that faith alone is meaningless and that faith must be shown through action and through the help of your fellow men and uh and I think Jimmy Carter has exemplified that particularly in the 40 plus decades rather the four plus decades that he has spent since leaving office. And so, um, you know, that Jimmy Carter does uh, exemplify what uh, what the book of James um, preaches. I'm doing my class this Sunday. Y'all are all invited Jesus on the front page of the New York Times and all sites Episcopal Church. You can't talk about Jimmy Carter without talking about Rosalind Carter. Uh, it's what's an amazing partnership they had. I was with them, as, as Andre says, he, he was around Emory campus a good bit. And I'm a Rosalind Carter fellow at Emory. That's one of her projects of uh, bringing young women into leadership role. She is, uh, I, I think about both of them this week, not, not only him. And I also think about the way in which both of them have been engaged in the life of Georgia since living the presidency. I mean, they spent I think their their plan, and mostly were they carried out, were able to carry out their plan. They were a third with the Emory campus, uh, a third in Plains, and a third internationally. Uh, and they were always together. It was just a lovely, lovely thing to be around them and to enjoy them. He was still engaged with Georgia, uh, even. Um, uh, in in very recently, I mean, the Carter Center's engagement in Georgia's mental health parity discussions in the last year have been very front row. Um, he called me one day. This was amazing, and this is one of those things you don't forget. Friday night during the session at the you know end of a busy week, the phone rings and they says, uh, uh, "This is Kay from Carter Center. Would you hold for the president, please?" And of course, I was. <laughs> very alert and said yes and he wanted to talk about bills in the state senate because uh it wasn't going the way he wanted to and he had figured out that i was in middle management 
uh, kind of in control of the Judiciary Committee then, and he wanted to know what I was going to do about bills he didn't like, and I told him I wasn't going to call him for a hearing, and he said, oh, I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Rosalind and I have been very worried about this. The fact that he would call me on a Friday night, uh, and then he wanted to talk about the, the rules of the Senate, about how they could possibly take the bill out of my committee, which, in fact, they ultimately did. You know, I was a member of the state Senate, he told me. I said, yes, sir, I knew that. <laughs> Uh, it's just fascinating, <laughs> fascinating, ongoing contributions that they made for so many decades. Well, one more aspect, Leroy, about uh, uh, his uh, really f it, uh, undying faith in, in, in Christianity and the teachings of Jesus. You know, and I'm Jewish. I've made that clear on this show many, many, for many years now. But that doesn't mean I can't be deeply appreciative of how people... Uh, choose the faith that they uh, want to ground themselves in. And here, here's something else that Carter said at one point. He said, to me, Jesus Christ is not an object to be worshipped, but a person and a constant companion. And he went on to say that through his relationship with God, he felt known, understood, and loved, and that that relationship gave him, quote, a pleasant feeling of responsibility to share that love with others, including his work on behalf of human rights. Um, he said that when people from different parts of the world work together as equals, they experience an instant, and this is a quote, an instant and overwhelming melding of cultures, languages, and interests into a spirit of friendship and love. Again, an incredibly powerful statement, especially at a time when we are so torn apart by um, the differences rather than coming together around where we can find commonality. You know, that that is a, it's, it stands out starkly if you think about uh, where uh, politics and religion usually intersects in our country at the moment, right? Because what he talked about is things that are inclusive uh, and there were not wedge issues. There were not issues <clears throat> where you separate, divide, where there's anger, where there's judgment. Uh, this is about uh, attending to the things that, if you are a Christian, are the most important, which are, which is being inclusive, which is loving your neighbor, which is uh, providing aid and comfort. Uh, those are the things when you uh, look at uh, how you should spend your life if you are a Christian and you are a leader in your community. And he is an example of everyone, and he never put himself above uh, folks like my father. My father is a was a deacon, and he was a guy who, like Jimmy Carter, was a man of tremendous faith. And he spent his life uh, helping his community uh, in a way where he was a servant, and he was humble, and he was inclusive. And there were things about the world that he uh, may not agree with personally even, but it never got in the way of what he thought, knew his Christian charge was, which was to be, again, uh, inclusive, to love his neighbor, and to provide aid and comfort. You know, Andra, uh, uh, Mary Margaret points out what an extraordinary uh, partnership he and Rosalind Carter had for 90 years. They've known each other since they were children um, and married longer than any other uh, uh, president and first lady. We also know that Carter's now outlived every other uh, uh, president of the United States. Um, but I, if you don't mind, Andra, then I'll give you a chance to react to what a relationship like that can mean, how it can sustain us in difficult times. You know, Carter wrote poetry. And, and here's just a little bit of a poem that he wrote about Rosalind. Uh, uh, 
he said this, and this I think it was quite a while ago when they may have been married, but, but he's reflecting on their courtship. She'd smile and birds would feel that they no longer had to sing, or it may be I failed to hear their song. Within a crowd, I hope her glance might be for me, but knew that she was shy and wished to be alone. I'd pay to sit behind her, blind to what was on the movie screen, and watch the image flicker on her hair. I'd glow when her diminished voice would clear my muddled thoughts like lightning flashing in a gloomy sky. The nothing in my soul with her aloof was changed to foolish fullness when she came to be with me. I'm, there's more, but oh my gosh. <laughs> Andra. Well, that's clearly love. I'd like that. Like that sort of just idea that he was completely, you know, enraptured um, by her love like that, that, and, and, and I'm, 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 I'm assuming, and I'm, I guess a hundred percent sure without having spoken to Mrs. Carter about this, that she was aware of that and that it was reciprocated and they're just the mutual respect that the two of them have had in their relationship. So the fact that he talks about her you know, in the context of policy, um, you know, it was always very clear that she was his number one, uh, uh, number one confidant, number one advisor. Uh, she caught black actually in the early days of the Carter administration for coming into cabinet meetings and taking notes, right? Because it's how they ran their business together. Uh, like there's a, a partnership there that actually was not in all presidential marriages. So if you sort of read the historian's take on some of the presidential marriages, some of them weren't that great. Um, and I think there's some of the obvious ones where we know about where there were obvious cases of infidelity, but there were also places where, you know, the wife in particular looked like she was more window dressing and wasn't necessarily included in the same way. That was not the case with Rosalind Carter. It was very clear that she was an equal partner in that relationship and that he respected her implicit, implicitly and that that was reciprocated as well. I do want to go back to something that 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 Leroy mentioned, and I think it's about sort of what grace looks like. We often we talk about love and grace, I think, in often really kind of cheap and superficial ways um, in American society. And so our interpretation of grace is um, often sort of the unmerited favor. We get things that we don't necessarily deserve, and that's certainly part of it. But um, when I think about how grace is used in the biblical text with my sort of uh, mediocre understanding of Greek, uh, so the theologians can, uh, can, can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but the actual word that's being used there, karos, is, is, is this idea of God getting on the inside of you to change you, right? This Jimmy Carter couldn't have done the things that he did by himself. None of us can do the things that we want to do by ourselves, right? And if left up to my own devices, I'm probably going to be mean and self-serving and all of that kind of stuff. But like tapping into God is what allows you to kind of have that change so that you can actually like, you know, on a basic level, not strangle people like, you know, that you come in contact with every day. But then on a platform like President Carter's, it's something that could try to negotiate Middle East peace or build houses for the homeless afterwards um, and do the kinds of things that get you the type of notice that's going to win you a Nobel Peace Prize later. Right. And it's that idea that like, there is something greater than you that you need to kind of be intimately involved in that I think is at the essence of what President Carter was talking about when he was talking about this personal relationship with God. Um, I appreciate this conversation very much. Um, we're going to have time to eulogize Jimmy Carter, to talk in very specific detail on the show about his accomplishments, in some cases the things that he was not able to do 
his presidency, his post-presidency. In other words, there's an awful lot to unpack about his life, what he meant to Georgia and to the country and to the world. And, and we will do that. But I'm really grateful to this panel for today as he is still in the process of what his family would call transitioning. Um, we can talk about that aspect of all of this. Thank you for that. I'm going to share one quick story before we go to a break. Um, I got to know Jimmy Carter. I feel very grateful um, when I moved here in 1983 and, and spent good amounts of time covering him over the years. But one moment really stands out uh, for me. My son, Bill, was born in 1989. And about a year or so after that, um, I was at the Carter Center doing an interview with President Carter about something. I don't remember at this point what it was. We did the interview, and then we did what we, you know, we call the cutaways, where the camera has to move around to get shots of me and whoever I'm interviewing talking. And during that time, President Carter said to me, didn't I read that you had a baby recently? And I said, well, yes, my son was born. He's about a year or so old now, President Carter. And, and he said, I don't think I've had my picture made with him yet. And I said, well, n no. And he said, oh, we have to do that. And let's get that set up. And I left the Carter Center thinking what a lovely gesture that was, but feeling that wasn't going to probably happen. And yet, hours later, Nancy, who at that time was his personal you know, uh, assistant and aide, called me up and said, uh, when can you bring your son? President Carter wants to make sure you take the picture. And two or three days later, went back to the Carter Center, went up to the apartment in the Carter Center that, that Jimmy and Rosalind uh, maintained. And we spent a half hour taking photographs with my little boy and Jimmy and Rosalind Carter that are so precious to us to this day. What a remarkable gesture from uh, uh, Jimmy Carter, which really touched, in my case, my life. And there are many people who had experiences like that. Let's get to a break. We've got politics to talk about when we come back on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Edward Lindsay, Andre Gillespie, uh, Mary Margaret Oliver, and Leroy Chapman join me for today's show. Um, let's move on to some uh, politics. Leroy, uh, just uh, before the show went on the air Friday, uh, your uh, website uh, posted a story by Dave Wickert, who uh, really told us new information based on a deep gleaning of the voluminous documents released by the January 6th committee that told us something we hadn't known before about an effort that the Trump campaign made, uh, an additional effort to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. And what the story reveals is that in December, I think it was, of 2020, members of the Trump campaign staff made calls to 120 Georgia Republican legislators asking them 
to uh, call a special session, to insist on a session where they could appoint Trump electors to replace the Biden electors. And what's really remarkable about it, Leroy, is the January 6th committee had a grid at which Wickert was able to uh, get access to that showed how various legislators responded to that call. Talk about that with us, Leroy. <laughs> yeah, it really is an extraordinary uh, document. And when you think about the depth that the January 6th committee went to to uh, recreate what happened during those those months that we're still learning things about, uh, this one, again, if you think about the uh, what was happening at the time, so we know that President Trump had, uh, you know, wanted to dispute election results. We know that President Trump and his folks were trying to pressure Brian Kemp, the governor, to call a special session uh, to uh, dispute the election results. Uh, we know now, too, that uh, not only did they uh, call upon those leaders, uh, those executive level leaders, they were calling lawmakers uh, and individual lawmakers. If you think about what that means, if uh, the White House is calling saying, we need you uh, and uh, you have a responsibility here. And if they're telling folks that we have this evidence, which, of course, we know uh, at the moment uh, th there was not real evidence of the scale of any kind of election fraud that would have made any difference in the outcome. But uh, certainly that was being peddled at the time. It is pretty extraordinary uh, when you think about the pressure that some of these folks uh, were probably under uh, to uh, to act. So uh, if we think about how, you know, uh, close we were during that moment to having a different outcome or, or result uh, or just having a different process whereby uh, there is more doubt cast upon uh, voting, uh, that that shows you exactly the links, I think. And then the final thing, too, is that that story, the timeliness of it does inform what was also happening with uh, our special purpose grand jury and some of the things they're looking at. Uh, the scope of that stuff will uh, will include some of those actions. So we don't quite know everything that happened with the special purpose grand jury. Uh, last week's report uh, didn't reveal a ton, but we know that it is being informed by what happened with the January 6th committee, some of its findings, and also what um, these questions that are raised about uh, deliberate campaigns to make sure that uh, the vote was undermined. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens locally in Georgia now that we've got this national investigation forming uh, even again what happened. Yeah, uh, Edward, uh, the the grid that uh, was published uh, suggested as many as 30 of those Republicans were called seem to express some interest in doing that, in replacing Biden with Trump electors. Now, the AJC was careful, and, and I want to be in terms of this show as well, to say that it's hard to—you really have to be careful about uh, the notes that are added to this to know exactly what people were saying. For instance, Chuck Efstration, the Republican who's now the majority leader, was counted as one who said, yeah, he'd work on overturning the uh, Biden electors. But Efstration is adamant in, in responding to the uh, story and saying, that's not true. I would never do that. And actually provided a screenshot from Facebook in which he posted that he did not believe in the, in the uh, fake election theory. Edward? Yeah, that's exactly right. So you have to sort of question, you know, and, and be careful before you, you ascribe any particular uh, position by anyone. And I think Estrations was the most uh, telling in that he actually has uh, 
uh, physical proof uh, to say that, uh, no, that wasn't his position. As a matter of fact, he, he decried what it was happening. Uh, what I also found interesting were the number of Republicans when a president uh, of the United States or a president's team uh, from your own party calls and you don't return the call. <laughs> I, I found that to be extremely telling. Leroy, if I remember correctly, like 90 of those people that were called or so, maybe, is that right, Leroy? Uh, something like that. <laughs> Failed to fail yes. to even return the phone call, and I think that was was very telling uh, in terms of folks just going, "No, I'm not going to be part of this. I'm staying out of this particular issue." <laughs> Mary Margaret, but and Andrew, though, um, I, I think Leroy already made an important point here. Um, this uh, effort certainly folds into what the special grand jury here in Fulton County is looking at, and what DOJ is looking at. Because all of this was masterminded, we learned in the January 6th committee uh, hearings, by John Eastman, uh, the Trump lawyer who came up with this plot with Trump's approval uh, to change the slate of electors and put the vice president in a position where he could reject the Biden electors and instead accept uh, Trump electors. So... So it may be just an interesting story about an effort to overturn the election in a sort of a vague way, but it plays right into what's being investigated here in Georgia and in Washington. Again, Georgia is in the spotlight in um, very difficult ways. It's, it's very, very stark to change from Jimmy Carter to the mechanisms of the Trump administration. Who would believe anything that comes out of the... Trump administration, quote unquote, team. I mean, there are a very, very short number of names of politicians whose calls I would not return, but I do have a list in my head. I'm not returning this phone call. And the fact that you're smart enough not to return the phone call of the president of the United States says a whole lot about how ridiculously crazy this whole uh, dynamic or this whole story is. I mean, why would anybody return his phone call? It's uh, it's very scary. What is going to happen with the Fulton County Grand Jury is a more significant story, is a more uh, important in terms of what we have to think about and predict and how we respond. How does Georgia respond? I mean, Fannie Willis has a tough, tough, tough set of calls to make, as many DAs have to make tough calls on many days. Um, the grand jury has spoken, evidence presented to it. Evidence will, in her judgment, have to be perhaps presented to a, a jury in a 12 people citizens of Fulton County. Um, again, Georgia is in the spotlight. Yeah, you know, I think the thing that is most important is the idea that we know that there was coordination. Right. There was a script that people were following. There was a list of folks who were targeted. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to get into sort of who I think is protesting too much or whether or not I think when somebody says that they weren't contacted, like, uh, you know, that they didn't say what the sheet says that they that, that 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 they said. I think that that's actually a minor issue that can actually be decided at election season when it's time to return those folks to office. But it's the idea of the coordination that I think is, in fact, the most um, important thing. Um, and the idea that they uh, that the you know Trump campaign was targeting certain people, um, you know, it's also not a surprise in some instances 
like I said, I don't think, you know, I, I, I take some people, not all of them at face value when they say that like this was, you know, this could be like a typographical error and you wrote yes in the wrong spot or something else along those lines. But the idea that there were voicemails, that there was a, a tracking of who was doing what, and that people may have also been hearing through back channels, well, we think this person sort of, you know, is a yes. Like it all seems like per perfectly reasonable and it actually points towards the direction of collusion, which may be the way that like this case gets decided, that there was coordination and we'll see how high it goes up, whether or not it implicates Trump directly, that that, would, that could end up proving something conspiratorial. All right. Um, I got to get to the final break of the show. When we come back, I'd really love to uh, talk about a couple of uh, legislative issues that are uh, uh, worth our conversation. We'll do that after these messages. Mary Margaret Oliver, over the weekend, Patricia Murphy published a column which uh, was basically an interview with former Governor Nathan Deal, who we all know uh, uh, gained a national reputation for criminal justice uh, reform. Uh, his efforts to uh, release nonviolent offenders who could be in, put into programs where they might reform their lives from prison, um, uh, many of the things that Deal accomplished. And one of the reasons that she talked to him was uh, because uh, Governor Kemp and his legislative leaders are, are moving back in the other direction again and now talking about stiffer penalties, uh, talking about how to, how to crack down on gang recruitment by uh, making penalties for getting involved with that much uh, tougher. And Nathan Deal's not going to take He's not going to criticize Brian Kemp, given the height of Brian Kemp's popularity right now. But he does say that he has always believed in a holistic approach to how we deal with crime. And I think um, indirectly makes the point that that's not the way things are being addressed right now at the Capitol. Mary Margaret? Governor Deal began his legal career as an assistant district attorney, and then he went to be a juvenile court judge in Hall County. He may have been 30 at that point. Actually, he was my first juvenile court judge back in Hall County way back when. So he has always been uh, in politics and in policy discussions, one of the more substantive people in the room. He's always very much into details and analysis and, and does think holistically. He, um, National reputation for criminal justice reform is very well earned. I was on the first um, criminal justice reform council when it was first appointed. And at that table uh, was just Justice Mike Boggs, now Chief Justice Mike Boggs, who is carrying on that uh, role in a very, very strong way. Um, Minimum sentences has always been a bad idea in terms of there's absolutely no science for it. There is absolutely no proof that uh, a minimum maximum sentence in some format helps. It does express uh, a political view that this is a more serious crime than we've been dealing with. But if you look at what happened this weekend in Columbus, 17 children from age 5 to 17, and most of them were under 13 years old, Seven children shot in some kind of shootout. I don't know how many guns there were. A minimum sentence does not have any relationship to a shootout with a bunch of young teenagers. 
it is very, very frustrating to those of us in the Capitol that think uh, seriously about the toxicity of poverty and disadvantage and uh, cruelty that uh, children face. It's really, really sad. Minimum sentencing is a bad idea in response. Uh, Edward, uh, when Nathan Deal talks about a holistic approach, he talks about things like failing schools. Uh, He talks about substandard housing. He talks about food inequity. All of these things which Nathan Deal would argue uh, contribute to uh, some individuals uh, pursuing a life of crime uh, because they feel like they're, they don't have alternatives. Well, yeah, Mary Margaret and I were both uh, co-signers to, to, on several of the, of the criminal justice bills, um, reform bills that uh, Governor Deal was, was passing through. And yeah, it is a holistic approach. And when it comes to the criminal justice system itself, one thing that that his administration preached and, and has stayed with me is that we have to figure out a way to divide out between those individuals that we are mad at versus those folks that we are merely versus those folks that we are afraid of. Those folks that we are mad at, which are nonviolent criminals, we need to come up with some way as an alternative to putting them in jail which will oftentimes only make them uh, more trained as a criminal down the road and perhaps even more dangerous, come up with alternatives to incarceration for them, but still always make sure that there's a prison cell available for someone who does engage in violent behavior that threatens our, our society. And that was that's always been the balance uh, that is that uh, that folks have worked toward. And that hopefully that is a balance that uh, that will continue down the road, even though we do face a situation now in which we have an uptick in crime and we need to figure out ways to address it. We still need to make sure that 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 we that we take that hard look at between those folks that we are uh, mad at versus those folks that we are we, we have a reason to be afraid of. Leroy and then Andra. So uh, I think Representative Oliver pointed to something that is uh, pretty important about Nathan Deal, and that is his background. So he is, uh, I think, among leaders in our our state of of the recent era, uh, is someone who has occupied the governor's office with really relevant experience about the issue of crime, where it is not uh, demagogued. I mean, he has a, a understanding of a couple of things that are important. One, you're not going to arrest your way out of a crime wave. Uh, that's that's not it. And and secondly, that uh, some of the root causes are beyond law enforcement. So when you think about uh, where we are now, it's very easy for any politician of any party to begin talking about uh, the idea of more policing and more prisons. Uh, they can talk about the court system and whether or not the, uh, the court system is efficient and whether or not punishments are adequate. All those things are, are the things that people understand, and in a uh, in a political setting, uh, those are those are digestible things that you can uh, touch on the frustrations. But again, the more difficult thing is what Governor Deal uh, pointed to, which is to look at the root causes. What is what? Why are children one? Why do children have guns? Uh, why would they be unsupervised maybe at that hour? Uh, and what's going on in, in the homes, in our schools, other places where uh, conflict resolution is not uh, being taught in a way uh, that would prevent some of those things. So those are difficult conversations. The others uh, will uh, certainly fit nicely into uh, running and retaining office. 
Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. And, I, and, and and I think the issue here is political. So Governor Deal can be the elder statesman here. Um, and I hope that people hear it because I think what he's saying is very courageous. It's not something that goes into a slogan very well. It's not going to tap into anger, but it actually is going to move us in a direction to be able to actually get things done. And he's speaking from a place of conspiracy, um, from experience. Um, you know, it's really easy for politicians, particularly ones who don't have the same background, professional background that he has to kind of pop off and say what they want to do and they look like Rambo and they look tough. But at the end of the day, what is the policy outcomes? Like, do they actually achieve the goals that they set out to achieve? And what Governor Deal is pointing to based on his years of experience, both as a prosecutor and a judge and also as governor of the state, he's pointing to the fact, and I think says with authority, that's not going to get you the goal that you want. There's a better way to do it. Unfortunately, we're too politicized to really see it, but I hope that he can actually cut through some of that clutter and actually um, that the message lands on the right people. I do think it's important to point out that many of Nathan Deal's reforms were aimed at nonviolent offenders, whereas the Kemp administration is talking about dealing with violence. That doesn't mean that some of the same holistic approach shouldn't be applied to the potential for violent offenders, but but there is, I do think that distinction needs to be made. Mary Margaret, we got no, almost no time, but I want to ask you very quickly your thoughts about, uh, I know a subject that matters to you. Senator Ossoff has now launched a bipartisan investigation uh, looking at what is going on, what is wrong with Georgia's foster care system where children are being lost, they're being housed in completely inappropriate places, and to some extent are in danger. I'm assuming this is an issue, given your concerns about this sort of thing, that you're very glad they're taking on. I'm very glad that Senator Ossoff is turning the focus towards the children in Georgia who are really in trouble. Those 17 children shot this weekend directly relate, in my mind, to the children who are abused and neglected and who are not receiving adequate protections, adequate services. So thank you, Senator Ossoff. I hope we can do better. We will watch how that unfolds. And, of course, we've seen reporting. The AJC has certainly been doing it on all of the problems that are being faced by the foster care system. That's it. We are out of time for today's Political Rewind, but I really appreciate this panel getting us off to such a strong start. Andrew Gillespie, Mary Margaret Oliver, Edward Lindsay, and you, Leroy Chapman, Managing Editor of the AJC. Thank you so very much. Obviously, like all news organizations, we are continuing to follow closely developments in Plains with President Carter um, and will continue to report on his condition. Um, and like everyone, our thoughts and prayers are with that entire family right now as they deal with this very difficult time. Um, that's it. We will be back with a brand new Political Rewind uh, tomorrow. In the meantime, my thanks to Chase McGee, Natalie Mendenhall, Victoria Evans-Gayashi, and Jake Cook for your work on uh, putting the show together so well as you always do. That's it for us. We're uh, back tomorrow. And in the meantime, take care and please, everybody, stay healthy.